Welcome to Utopian Horizons. Hello and welcome to Utopian Horizons, a podcast where I cover a different utopia, dystopia, utopian thinker or movement in each episode. My name is Paul and in this episode we're going to be looking at a utopian novel called Island, which is written by August Huxley, of course better known for Brave New World. Um, I've been wanting to do this book for quite a long time and um, there's been a um, I've covered quite a lot of dystopias on on this uh, on this show. It's kind of hard not to, just because um, this is something I'm, I'm sure I've, I've talked about in some form or another. It's, it's something that certainly people like studying the field of utopia have talked about, and that is the, the fact that there is a prevalence of dystopias, um, which kind of says something about our current moment, perhaps, and our difficulty of of imagining um, utopian future. And I enjoy covering those dystopias, and I think it's worthwhile doing. But I do very much, very much want to cover um, attempts, uh, genuine attempts at imagining some kind of utopian vision. And this book um, is that. So this book was published in 1962, and we'll get into this a bit more when um, when we get into the, the conversation with my guest for this episode. But it's um, basically a book about an island utopia. Um, and, and to kind of boil it down to its simplest form, it's 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 a place where kind of Western science and um, and technology is is kind of merged with uh, Eastern um, spirituality or or philosophy to create this place where where um, where where people are kind of um, the idea is I guess it produces people that reflect this balance in that they. They are well nourished and um, well treated when they have medical conditions are well provided for via the science and technology as they have, and they um, they use a scientific approach to to things when they need to. But they also have this kind of spiritual awareness that allows them to kind of become very well adjusted to the world and, and their society. Um, but of course, we will get get more into all this stuff so joining me to talk about Ireland is Mark Taylor from HSE University based in Moscow so he's an he's an academic with a with a background uh, in English literature and yeah just happened to come across an, an essay that he'd written uh, on this book and it'd been one that was uh, on my list of stuff that I wanted to cover so I was very happy to, to have Mark on to, to talk about it just a, a few quick housekeeping things to get out of the way and then, then we'll get on to the to the chat with Mark. I want to give another quick plug to the new podcast that I've started with Rosie, um, who some of you might know from Diane or The Shadow Trap, um, which is a podcast called Get Object, all one word, where we talk about things in video games. Um, it's been a, a, a lot of fun to do and uh, as it turns out, very I think a very productive lens for for kind of thinking about uh, objects and games and the way um, we think about, indeed, the way we think about objects in real life, uh, the kind of symbolic power and um, all sorts of things like this. So, yeah, there's a bunch of episodes already there on um, keys, maps, gore, computers uh, and clothes uh, at the time of recording. And there'll be um, more stuff coming there. So, yeah, um, 
if you're into games um indeed i've i've been told that there are people who are not into games at all who really love the podcast so that was a uh, very nice to hear but yeah if you if it sounds like something you might be interested in then uh, get object all one word and I'd be really grateful if you could give it a try a couple of quick things related to this podcast um i haven't had any I don't think I've had any um, reviews on iTunes for a while and those are really, really helpful to to kind of bring the podcast to more people's attention. So if you haven't reviewed it and, and you've been enjoying it, I'd be really appreciated. Uh, I'd be really appreciative if you could just take a moment to, to write me a quick review. That would be amazing. And finally, if you want to help support me to keep doing this podcast and you want to get access to a bunch of um, bonus episodes, most recently, in fact, including one with my uh, co-host of Get Object, Rosie, where we talked about Kentucky Route Zero, um, and also uh, stuff I've been doing on capitalist realism and um, essays from economic science fictions and all sorts of other stuff that's available there. Then if you go to patreon.com slash utopianhorizons, you can um, sign up to support the podcast there and get access to all that stuff. So that's enough of all that. I will leave you now with my conversation with Mark. Joining me now is Mark Taylor. He is a assistant professor of English literature at HSE University, which is based in Moscow. Thank you very much for joining me, Mark. And thank you for having me. So um, Mark has come to talk to me today about a novel published in 1962. It's called Island and was written by Aldous Huxley. So this is a, a novel about an island called um, Pala, uh, kind of a, a utopian island society. And we kind of get introduced to it via a, a um, Western journalist who inadvertently washes up on its shores and kind of learns more and more about this um, place. So the, the first thing I wanted to, to ask you about is, is I'd seen... Um, a few places where this island was talked about as kind of a third option to Brave New World because um, I think um, Aldous Huxley actually wrote uh, in one of the introductions or something that that was a a foreword to Brave New World um, that he he um, had kind of in Brave New World he'd he'd kind of offered like a scientific dystopia or a kind of hellish primitivism and he suggested that he would like to offer a third option. And this, I mean, is it right in saying that this book is kind of seen by some people as, as him trying to do that, trying to articulate that other possibility? Yeah, very much so. Um, Island is kind of the culmination of ideas that Huxley has been kicking around for 15 years. Um, it's his last novel. It's published a year before his death. And he's pulling together ideas he's had basically since the Second World War. Mm -hmm. He's been thinking about why did we get to this place? And feels that humanity's drive to advance, its drive for more and more scientific knowledge, needs moderating somehow. So you talked about a third option, and he sees that option as being a sort of balance of east and west mm-hmm. so for example in um apanescence a dystopia he publishes in 1948 we have this 
a sort of satanic priest who's a sort of positive voice in that novel, strangely, who <laughs> suggests that um, Eastern mysticism might have made sure that Western science was properly used. He says the Eastern art of living could refine Western energy. And, you know, it takes a while to get around to it, but 14 years later, we get Ireland, which is a society where we see what that might look like in action. Okay. Well, can we can we talk a bit about what kind of society this is? Um, because... Yeah, for for people you know, for people who are listening who, who haven't read the book, I think it'd be useful if we could kind of describe in in what sense this is a utopia, what kind of vision this is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So as, as you mentioned, we're on an island called Pala, um, mm-hmm. an island in Southeast Asia, and there's a few sort of interesting features about it. Um, it's proudly independent. Um, it's never been colonized by another country. However, at the time we see it, we're sitting sort of in, basically in the real world. It's a fictional country, but it's the real world of the early 60s. Yeah. And Pala has oil. It has oil that it's not really using because yeah, they've decided not to pursue technological advance at all costs. And that oil is coveted by oil companies. Um, their plan is to use Pala's neighbour, a slightly larger island, Rendang, which has a military dictatorship, to get access to that oil. So we have this sort of interesting feature of a real-world context, a, a sort of endangered society that isn't necessarily there in most utopian novels. It's quite a familiar but, context as well, um, <laughs> even now, the way yeah, COVID yeah, lays out, yeah. like imperialism and, yeah. There's a lot that still feels relevant today, I think. Mm. Um, anyway, Pala is heavily invested in things like yoga, in meditation, in what we'd now call mindfulness. So mm. they've trained, for example, minor birds, um, to repeat certain mantras to remind people to sort of pay attention to the here and now. So the first and last words of the novel are the word attention being yeah. being said by one of these minor birds. But while we have this investment in sort of mysticism, in sort of being in touch with your true self, with a deeper reality, it is also a society that does appreciate what science can do but is trying to control it so they've built for example this large experimental station they call it which is a biological research center trying to find for example better crop strains you know more resilient plants etc so that's that third way we've got a society invested in eastern mysticism eastern religion but what Huxley sees as Western science. Yeah. Because I think when you describe it, it can, if you just start describing this kind of idea of, like, you know, island and, um, yeah, these you know, <clears throat> elements of, of yoga and, and these, because it can sound like you're almost describing a, like a primitivist society. But as you say, it's very much not that they are 
yeah they are they are also very focused on science and they are not against using technology that they want it to be employed in, in certain directions like they're not um, a society that's focused on using technology for profit but they they do use science that's not something they're against in any way yeah um we have again in terms of interesting features um pala has a monarchy it's meant to be a constitutional monarchy yeah but we have in addition to the looming threat from rendang we have the fact that a new monarch is about to come of age so the current raja is a guy murugan who's 17 years old you know, a week out from his 18th birthday when he will come of age and he intends to reform the country. Mm. And the problem with Murugan is he didn't grow up on Pala. He was sent away to Switzerland, Swiss educated. And he brings a different set of attitudes to the island, a set of attitudes that are very, very consumerist. Mm. There's one scene where he's pretending to read a sort of book on an introduction to ecology but really he's got the cover of that over the Sears catalogue and you know um, our sort of British protagonist Will thinks he might be looking for example at a lingerie section sort of looking at the models in that but no he's he's coveting scooters and speedboats things that Pala hasn't invested in yeah precisely yes this it's, it's very much not a, a, a consumer society. It has, as we said, it has elements of technology, but it doesn't employ that in the service of consumerism. It's employed. So, for example, the the a very important principle of the of the place is that people need a kind of um, need a, a level of like material security. So, like you, you mentioned, it has all this, these, um, this stuff about like becoming like a fully realized human being, and um, you know, all these these kind of mystical elements. But it recognizes that to give people, for people to be able to do that, they need to like not be starving. So, science is impl- so sort of technology. This um, research station you mentioned, where they're trying to use science to 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 feed themselves better, um, that is is used to. To, to, to give people that security not for these um yeah not towards the the goal of consumerism which is like the threat that Morrigan re- represents i guess yeah i'd agree with that yeah um i think uh another kind of um important or interesting feature of society is the way it thinks about family could you talk us through that a little bit sure um so pala has these things that it calls mutual adoption clubs. So a child will have both its biological parents, but also a number of co-parents. They mention it could be up to 20. And the child can pretty much choose to go and spend some time with any of those co-parents, more or less when, when he or she feels like it. Mm. Um, so we have this kind of 
very big society comes into my head, but that's got awful David Cameron connotations. Um, But we have, I'm going to go with it anyway, we have this kind of big society um, where every child is sort of, has has a bigger belonging. Every child has the chance to see different ways of living, different ways of being an adult. One of the things actually Will, the British protagonist, brings to um, Ireland, which is unusual. He's he's not such a blank cipher as, as you often get in utopian novels. No. He brings a lot of demons with him and you know he's sort of effectively psychoanalyzed by the Palinese when when he arrives there and and they see a lot of his problems stemming from his claustrophobic um, family background you know his father was a typical sort of reserved British gentleman who wouldn't wouldn't sort of show him affection Um, he also had a distant relationship with his mother and they they pity the fact that he couldn't sort of get out of that sort of prison of the fa- enclosed family units. And mutual adoption clubs are their sort of mechanism for giving variety of experience, giving a sort of more rounded, healthy childhood. Yeah, it's a very, they, they kind of, it's, they often use, I think Will's often used as an example of, of kind of showing how, the way that Western society structures like creates um, sort of ill people effectively as it like Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. mentally ill people. And this is very much an idea of everything in the site is geared towards thinking about like how, how can we allow people to become like what they, what they should fully be as individuals. And the families are part of that. I, I, I kind of, I always think like, um, suggesting alternative uh family arrangements is is one of the really provocative things you can do in utopian fiction because understandably people don't like the people love their children and they don't like the (laughs) idea of their children uh, it's kind of breaking down that family unit i can understand it but but you can see the the logic in the way the novel is trying to think about it in terms of how the family creates an enclosed space where problems or pressures that people might have can be like exacerbated and the the idea is that in this system there can it kind of functions as a pressure valve where like parents and children are able to move uh yeah to like move away from that pressure and and it allow and it stops like stops these things escalating uh is this kind of the idea i guess yeah it's kind of yeah a sort of cooling off period if if anything is getting too hot within the sort of normal mm. biological family and it's it's presented throughout as additive um so will talks to children during his time on the island and they sort of pity that he only had one dad he only had one mum whereas they have mm. like 10 mums 10 dads each so it's seen as rather than part of your family unit being taken away, part of your time with your child being taken away, it's, it's presented as the opportunity for extra. And of course, yeah. you also will bring other children into your family. Mm. So there'll be more sociability that way. Yeah. 
Um, I think um, the way we see uh, like medicine being used in the book's quite a useful uh, example of like how the society is structured because we see like so yeah um, Will is injured when he arrives on the island so we see like how he's treated so there's a real mixture of they use that kind of hypnosis techniques on him they give him antibiotics and we find out they use they think of in, in some ways some of this stuff's quite um modern i guess in terms of they they think about people's diets when they're treating them they use they use um yeah like i said medicine they use um auto suggestion and meditation so they yeah they have this idea of like a, a kind of balanced and like complete treatment that takes into account like all of these different aspects which i think is a useful kind of analogy for how the society as a whole functions yeah, I think this is where we get into some of the um, aspects of Pella that really speak to deep concerns and deep beliefs for Huxley. Mm-hmm. So some of this, I agree, feels very contemporary to us today. Um, for example, it's quite often put that rather than, say, treating the mind and the body, we see this compound mind-body in the yeah. novel that they comprise one unit together, one inseparable unit. And you've got to pay attention to both mind and body, whatever it is you're doing, whether it's a physical ailment or a sort of mental, uh, ostensibly a mental problem that both the mind and the body deserve attention. Mm. Um, but where there's a lot of things I, I, I like in island a lot of things i like in pala but we get through here to some of um i don't know huxley's maybe stranger beliefs his stranger mm-hmm. ideas um so you mentioned hypnosis we also get for example um these sort of magnetic passes at one point as a sort of pain yeah. relieving method so in a sort of flashback to an earlier time in Pala, before the time Will arrives, um, when the utopian society is about to be set up, we see this interaction between a Scottish doctor and the Raja of the time. And the Scottish doctor is full of sort of Western scepticism, but gets convinced by the Raja that these magnetic passes will work in a situation where other pain relief medicine, other pain relief methods aren't available. Mm. And this is something that the the doctor eventually agrees to do and is surprised by how well he's able to sort of treat, operate on his patients without the patient feeling pain. Um, And it's medically nonsense it's scientifically nonsense yeah um but huxley feels that there's a lot that's sort of just out of reach of normal western beliefs a lot of mental psychic possibilities he it's quite sympathetic to ideas around esp um telepathy 
Mm. You know, he writes an article for the magazine Life, sort of a case for ESP in 1954. And these are some of the things that lie underneath what looks like, perhaps ostensibly looks like just mindfulness, looks like just um, sort of um, meditative practice that we would feel comfortable with, most of us would feel comfortable with. He thinks there is a deeper contact between people, a deeper value to the um, metaphysical that he invests in this Eastern society. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, it's, um, yeah, like you say, a lot of the stuff, I mean, most people would accept that, so that yoga is a, is a thing. Most people would accept that if not, if yoga doesn't have some kind, because obviously some people would think of yoga as having like importance in terms of like uh, your mind or like energy or something like that. But at the very least, people accept that yoga has like some physical benefit it's not like particularly controversial like if you do yoga as an exercise you're doing an exercise like it has some benefit and and uh, but yeah um i think it slips very easily from i don't just mean in terms of huxley but when you start thinking about like the importance of mind and stuff i think you can very easily slip from the yeah scientific so for example the placebo effect is a thing um Mm -hmm. there's lots of um lots of scientific studies that show that um, the effects of like optimism can have on patients recovery, which is not quite understood why, but is like an observable thing. But like, yeah, this can very sl- easily slip into things like, yeah, telekinesis and, and all these other things. So that, that kind of stuff doesn't come up so much in this book, but yeah, I can see how that definitely would underlie some of the. I mean, it's there around the fringes of it. Yes. It's an yeah, underlying belief yeah. to, that Huxley, it actually puts beneath a lot of the practices in Ireland. So I think we can agree with them. Many of us could agree with them on a surface level, but the deeper reason Huxley feels for them is perhaps more questionable. Yeah. We should say in terms of the the spiritual stuff as well, because obviously that's a very important component to society. There's a um, a, uh, fungus, uh, moksha, uh, moksha medicine that's kind of important to the, to the society um in that in that uh religion here is supposed to be a thing that's experienced as opposed to like preached so this is um yeah i i, I mean obviously um huxley had a so he wrote uh, it was mes was it mescaline he took and he wrote yeah, about right. in through the what's it called through something about perception i can't the, remember the doors but, of perception yeah that's it so he wrote about mescaline experience so yeah, that f- feels like this is a kind of a, him bringing that experience into this as like a, yeah, this is a very important part of, as a, a gateway to kind of this spiritual view that the society has. Yeah, I mean, this um, moksha medicine effectively is mescaline, I think. It's doing the same things that Huxley experienced when he took mescaline. Mm. Um, it's creating an awareness of impermanence, an awareness of flux. So there's a sense of seeing objects not as physical permanent objects, but seeing the movement of forces behind them. Mm. And that is experienced by the characters in this novel as as very, very transcendent, as 
that's the deeper, more important reality, rather than just feeling the solid table, seeing the past of the table, seeing the future of the table, seeing the forces that go into it, is at the centre of their religious belief, at the centre of their religious practice. So um, even from a very young age, even as children, they're introduced to taking this um, moksha medicine. Yeah. Um, one thing that I want to mention really quickly, just because I think it's worth being aware of, is um, that uh, Huxley's very uh, explicit about making clear that suffering does exist in this society. There's a, there's a couple of characters for which we see that. I just think that's worth mentioning because I think utopias that don't include uh, imperfection um, often inevitably fail in some way as visions because they, they don't feel like something uh, relatable it's something that that can exist so i think it's good that he does that i think that's always a useful thing um but something something i wanted to to ask you about is the uh way sexuality is depicted on the island so um sex is something that is talked about a lot um uh, almost to a degree where you're wondering like how horny Huxley is when he's writing it. <laughs> yeah. but, um, but, um, so it's worth saying that homosexuality is fully accepted in Pala. Um, however, it's kind of weird because he's created this society where he's explicitly like all the, the people that live there, like just, they accept homosexuality. They don't think of it as anything abnormal or deviant, but the depiction of, uh, Murrigan who uh, is implied to be gay is homophobic. I think there's this whole idea that he um, basically his mum smothered him and therefore that turned him gay. And, and it's kind of explicitly stated that she's twisted him and this is a horrible thing that she's done. So that's a strange, um, yeah, it's strange to have an author who's created this openness to it also displaying homophobia in his book but the, but the one the one thing i wanted to ask you about is is through murrigan we we get introduced to this idea of older members of the community kind of teaching young people about sex and it's it's kept now i don't know if i'm like reading something into this <laughs> that isn't there but there's a vagueness around it whenever it's discussed and it's kind of deliberately kept vague where it's not clear if they're basically talking about adults having sex with underage underage people or even children to like teach them mm-hmm, sex, mm-hmm, which is obviously mm-hmm. uh, not ideal. I mean, am I completely misreading this or is that something you see that might be in there as well? Um, so it's in respect of sex, it's quite a 1960s novel. Um, the ideas around sexual freedom maybe go further than mostly we'd be ready to go today. I think you're right that there is some suggestion about um, perhaps underage sex, as, as, as we put it. And there are some quite uncomfortable passages when Will visits a school. Um, the different year groups in the school, the different classes he visits the students are described in terms of their physical development, how developed yeah. breasts are, for example. It's it's really yeah. quite sickening. Um, about the 
sort of homophobia perhaps we see w- w- towards Murrigan. Um, I think there is a sort of strange tension with Pala being accepting of gay relationships, sort of seems fully accepting. Um, and the best explanation I have for that is that it would undercut the sort of projection of power. Um, so the suggestion is that Murrigan is um, sleeping with um, Colonel Dipper, the military dictator of the neighbouring island, mm-hmm. Rendang. And I think today still, you know, a, a lot of um, that kind of macho leader, there is, there are often insinuations about their sexuality because it would undercut the sort of strong male, you know, um, stereotypical male yeah. figure if they were in fact mm. gay. And I think there's a sort of carryover from the sense that Colonel Dipper is in fact gay to Murrigan as his, um, I guess, mm. partner. Yeah. But yeah, still, we I could do without those aspects yeah, of the novel. Yeah, sure. Um, so while, while we're on some of the, the kind of problematic aspects of, of this utopia, um, because I think I should say a lot of the stuff we've been talking about, I think it's largely a positive society, like people, this is not a capitalist society, like people have food, people have um, security, they, they have housing, that nobody there's starving. Um, whether or not you're particularly invested in the idea of like a society where people are always doing like meditation and yoga and stuff. I mean, it doesn't sound, it's not, not something I do, but it doesn't sound particularly awful to me. Like, um, um, like I say, everybody has a, a base means where they're able to kind of explore this stuff and they're free to, to, um, I guess in, indulge in that. I mean, they wouldn't think of it as indulging, but, but you know, you've, you're free to, to explore these things. Like I say, they've got great, you know they've got healthcare. They've 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 got the technology they need. So it's a very secure um, society, and um, yeah, largely uh, positive, I think. But as we suggested, there are some potential problems there. Um, w- one of the things that made me uncomfortable was uh, how much of a focus overpopulation is in this book, which is a, a big focus and a, a big theme at the moment, actually, with how people are thinking about climate change. And I don't know if you agree, but for me, this is a good example that we see now as well of how people talking about overpopulation very quickly slips into racism in terms of where people identify the problems. Yeah. Um, Again, this is something that plays into concerns Huxley had had for a long time from, say, the earliest I found is like a 1945 letter to his editor, a guy, Harold Raymond, um, where he worries about overpopulation. Actually, in talking about potential racism, he's worrying about overpopulation in Great Britain, that Great Britain is a country, he says, in which um, Malthus, this sort of um, originator of um, a lot of ideas around overpopulation, a country in which Malthus's nightmare has come true. Mm. And he's worried from even earlier than that about sort of um, bad farming practices, soil erosion. 
a sort of he's he's a conservationist at the very first stages of that being a thing. Um, so these are these are commendable positive things, and I get how when you've seen the population of the world grow as much as Huxley would have in his life, I think from you know one and a half million people to something like three and a half million people, so more than doubling. I, c- I can get how you are concerned that this can't continue, that rate of growth just mathematically can't continue. But yes, in Ireland, when, when examples are brought up, it's India and China, I think he mentions, um, Will mentions. Yeah, I was going to say it's interesting because you, you've obviously brought up that example of, of Britain there. But um, yeah, I, was, I, I wasn't I was aware of that. In, in the novel, it's very much the kind of, like I say, um, so yeah, as you say, he mentions China. He talks about it being uninhabited breeding and it being ter- terrifying how Central America's even outbreeding India. So it's all, and, and like I say, I think discourses on overpopulation now very, very quickly slip into people talking about Africa or yeah um Southeast Asia or so overpopulation is always a problem basically for people who aren't western um and this this book seemed to be playing into that I didn't know he'd also I mean as I said about... that, that was that was just in a sort of private letter but um it's it's something he writes about quite widely like the book Science Liberty and Peace talks about it on, on a, as a global problem so I think it's just a little bit unfortunate in Ireland that the couple of examples that get mentioned by name happen to be India and China. Mm. I just wanted to mention, because I don't know, maybe I should do an episode on this, but um, I think there's a lot of misconceptions about population growth in terms of like what we can support. Because as I say, when the people talk about population growth, they, they often will explicitly say, look at how populations are growing in these countries um, and we need to deal with climate change. If you look at the um, emissions from these populations and compare them to uh, the emissions like here and in America, then you'll find you're going to have to very quickly refocus your idea of mm-hmm, mm-hmm. where the problems are in terms of uh, if there is a population like where the where the where the problems are, and there's a, a, a strong link between high consumption, so between consumption and, and fertility, so low countries very low mm-hmm. fertility have very high consumption i think there's a lot of misconceptions also about population growth in terms of so we've also had big boom periods of population group in the history of the west but these these have leveled out and there's an assumption among people that population growth we see now will continue and continue which isn't necessarily the case so yeah i just think there's some misconceptions around that um one of the other things that would very obviously be problematic to me was the the um, the appearance of eugenics in this book. Um, could you talk us yeah. through so that a little bit? What we get in Ireland are families will mostly have two children. You know, thinking again about overpopulation, one of the achievements as, as it's presented of Pala is that they're not. Um, breeding uncontrollably. Um, when families elect to have a third child, it's explained that that's often a child who won't use genetic material from the father. 
that there will be some kind of artificial insemination um, using best genes possible. So using genes of either great artists or great scientists or or whatever. Um, so the idea is that this is going to sort of um, improve the stock, improve um, the average IQ. I think it's presented that um, within 15 years, the average IQ on Pala is going to be 115. Um, and yeah, that's sort of uncomfortable for all sorts of reasons. Firstly, because it doesn't really work like that. Again, Huxley's not quite right about the science. You know, maybe in terms of belief of the time, it's more forgivable, but it's uncomfortable nonetheless that we sort of selectively breed better children. And it's it's a weird echo back to Brave New World. Yeah, that's something I hadn't considered at all because it's um I mean I haven't read Brave New World for quite a long time, but unless I'm massively misremembering, eugenics is not presented as a good thing in that book in any way at all. <sighs> Brave New World is so funny to me. Brave New World is so weird. Um I mean there's a lot in there that uh, am I misremembering? There's a, I, no, I mean it's it's definitely a society gone wrong, but there's a lot of things in there that Huxley otherwise praises. So okay. you know, in Ireland we get selective breeding praised. Um the sort of drug use which is problematic in Brave New World um is praised in Ireland. Um what seems to be the problem for Huxley is not using technology, it's the sort of um restriction of it, you know, that you're born into a caste system in Brave New World. You know, your genetics mm -hmm. determine your caste throughout your life, determine your destiny. Um, whereas in Ireland, that is less so, though there are some problems even there, um, which we might talk about later. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's not that... You know, Ireland is often sort of read against Brave New World. It's read as a sort of... Um, antithesis, you know, the utopia to Huxley's dystopia, but it's funny how many echoes there actually are, you know, the same practices just utilised slightly differently. Mm. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think this kind of, this whole thing of eugenics feeds into something that's not a huge focus of the book, but there is some stuff about, like, the way people are kind of categorized so they they because the whole idea is that they try to um like as with families where they try to like remove these problems in which like uh i don't know like in a, if you had the problem of an abusive parent then a child could just go elsewhere and then they would not be abused and you would you would save them from that trauma and what that would do to them they have this idea of like very early on like categorizing children in these certain um so like as peter pans is one of the categories i think or like muscle men which they do in all sorts of weird ways by like x-raying the width of their wrist and stuff like that um and and giving like people like muscle men extra physical work so that they don't their kind of physical prowess doesn't emerge in like more oppressive or problematic ways um which in the society again the society is depicted as, as kind of being a, a helpful thing for avoiding 
yeah, for helping people to like realize themselves in a, a non um it without becoming something like twisted they're, they're able to identify problems and allow them to become like the best version of themselves but i think this idea of like quickly categorizing people and managing them would in reality lead to a far more oppressive society than what we actually get in pala yeah um i mean so much of ireland seems to be about society nurturing the individual that you can be the most realized version of yourself yeah so you know the drug taking is you know done with a group but you're having this individual transcendent experience um they have this practice of whatever your role in the society whatever your main job you will do a couple of hours physical work a day and you can choose what task to do so it might be sort of um you know cutting down lumber it, it might be sort of tilling the fields you you can choose pretty much what you're going to do for a few weeks at a time mm. um so you learn about yourself you develop you have a broad individual personal experience in yeah, the schools like a, similarly like a balanced person yeah but then we get this thing where it seems that yeah your physical form is also deterministic of your destiny as you say mm. you know they, they're x-ray wrists to weed out um problematic types so you, mm. the, the peter pan type so a sort of boy who doesn't grow up and it usually is a boy um were offered um so a sort of hitler type who struggles with maturation and sort of gets resentful mm. or the muscle man type again they, they say mostly is men in this group who stalin is our big example um, yeah, I guess it's interesting there that the both of them they're like Peter Pans and Muscle Men's, these are both mostly boys. So like yeah, <laughs> I hadn't really yeah. thought of that, but women are basically don't have a category. <laughs> they're just yeah. Which might tell you something about society as well, I suppose. I can't remember exactly what the numbers were, but it's something like one in seven boys I think is gonna be a muscle man and one in twenty three girls, something like that. Mm. But yeah, it's 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 quite regrettable how so much is about listening to um, individuals, letting individuals learn for themselves what suits them. Against mm. you know, with X-ray wrists, you are a muscle man. Yeah, it's a yeah, a strange thing. Uh, did you did you want to to talk a bit about um the way uh, they deal with crime and the uh, powder as well? So, firstly, you know. Um, we get this sort of optimistic idea that, you know, Pala isn't going to have a lot of crime. Yeah. Um, that, you know, letting people realise themselves, letting people have this sort of freedom to be who they want to be eliminates a lot of the um, internal motivations for crime. Mm. But it is also an area where I think things fall down a little bit. There is a little bit of a shortcut taken because what, happens is if somebody is found guilty of a crime they are remanded to the the mutual adoption club so Mm. the mutual adoption club decides it seems what to do with this person and then at certain intervals the mutual adoption club will report back to a judge and eventually when reports on this person you know when they've sort of been 
cured, I guess, helped, then the case is closed. And Will, sort of understandably enough, when he's being told about this, asks, well, what happens if you know, the reports don't become satisfactory? What if they're never satisfactory? And the answer to that is simply, in the long run, they always are. And mm. it's it's a bit of a disappointment. It's a bit of a shortcut because there must be cases. I mean, however well-structured the society, sometimes things are going to go wrong. Sometimes, you know, people aren't going to be helped by your best intention methods. And it's one of the places where I think Huxley doesn't offer an answer. Yeah, I think... Um... So first of all, I'd say I, th- I think there's a lot of value in the kind of system he presents here, just in terms of like we don't have a um, uh, a system in in reality that's built on like reforming people or helping. I mean, we have, if anything, we have a system that kind of gets people trapped in cycles of criminality and is very bad at kind of rehabilitating people or helping them to. Um, you know move away from from whatever that is and become become something better but yeah as you say i think this is always a problem in utopia of how to deal with people that won't fit into it which is um or don't want to fit into it which is Mm -hmm, really really mm -hmm. always a really really difficult thing to do and like as you say yeah he he just basically um decides not to try and deal with that so yeah. yeah, I mean, in, I in, so, in so many other places, this novel is bursting with ideas. There's so much philosophy in there, so much religion in there. Mm. That this feels like a point where Huxley realised he had to say something to sort of achieve the sort of comprehensive description of society that's sort of expected in a utopian novel, mm-hmm. but doesn't actually have much to say here. I mean, even you know, what the Mutual Adoption Club are meant to do for criminals is vague it's not really explicitly stated what they should be doing to help no so let's let's talk about so i think we've we've already kind of um made clear like how um there's all these these um ideas of like merging eastern and west like uh yeah science and uh philosophy and and mysticism and and, and things like that and it's a, a book that's um, traditionally been uh, read that way. Um, I think it's worth saying in, in the way it does this, I think it might be fair to, to call it um, slightly orientalist in that there's, I don't think there's anything scientific taken from the Eastern tradi- tradition. Um, so there's very much an idea that science is a Western thing and um the East is this yeah, place of, of, of mystique and uh, philosophical ideas and that. So I think there, there's potentially some problems there. But anyway, I, I've so I've, I've read, uh, as you know, an, an essay that you've um, written about this book. And you were talking about how this, this traditional reading of the book as an attempt to, to kind of marry East and West is actually, you think, slightly misleading. And you talked about a philosopher called Bergson, who I was not familiar with until I read your essay. So could you tell us a bit about who Bergson is and 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 explain to us like how you've used him as a way to read the book and, and what that kind of tells us about it? Sure. Um, 
So first of all, I want to say that, you know, the reading of the novel as, you know, this marriage of East and West has plenty of legitimacy. There's plenty of reason for that. Um, we get so much reference to um, Buddhist belief, Buddhist practice. Um, it, it's sort of, indeed, you know, unfortunately, a bit of a pick and mix East. You know, we get sort of Tantra, we get some Hindu ideas sort of mixed in a way that is incredible. Um, but, you know, Huxley is very invested in this. He 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 was involved with um a sort of Hindu fringe group Vedanta in, in, in the US for sort of fifteen, twenty years. And so he's got a lot of knowledge of this. It's not just flavour, it's not just a veneer of mm-hmm. of um Eastern mysticism. But I think this masks the fact that um, it's not merely practical elements that come from the West in this novel. You know, the sort of presentation is that it's scientific methods, mm-hmm. scientific practice, and debatable whether that really is Western, but anyway, that it's that comes from the West. That there is also enormous amount of western philosophy that enters into this novel and the philosopher i'm most interested in the one i feel is particularly significant for the sort of understanding of fulfillment of transcendence is this guy Henri bergson so to explain who who bergson is for people not familiar um he's a French philosopher working in the late 19th, early 20th century, who became quite voguish in Britain in the 1910s. So this stems from when his works were first translated into English. That was you know, around that year, around 1910, 1911, that most of his work was translated. Um, but he also did this big speaking tour, you know, a massive sort of lecture at Oxford University, you know, there were queues down the street to see him. Um, and he's been recognised for, for some time as quite significant for a number of modernist writers. In particular, T.S. Eliot, who studied under Bergson at the Sorbonne. But gradually links have been established to um, writers like... Um, Virginia Woolf, James Joyce, uh, D.H. Lawrence. Now, what is his contribution to their work? What does he do to modernist literature? Um, That's a complicated question because I think, like a lot of philosophy, um, the takeaway from a philosopher's writing and what they're actually arguing can be quite different. Um, His writing style is can be complex in places and you know it's not always clear how much or little of him people had read including mm-hmm. including um Huxley but the big idea that a lot of people take from him is that um time is not divisible that we have this sort of idea you know by the structured way, which comes in a structured way, we live our lives yeah. of a divisible time. 
you know, we divide time into days, into hours, into minutes, into seconds. And his argument is that in reality, time doesn't function like this. He has this concept duration, this big idea that offers a meaningful persistence of the past into the present, that this moment in time meaningfully carries with it forces from the past that determine how we're going to move into the future. So what this does for modernism often is that it gives a validity to a sense that actually our subjective time is more true than the time on the clock that our subjective experience of time, we do carry things from the past, we do carry memories, we do carry sensations. You know, if I, if I burnt my finger a minute ago, I'm carrying the sensation of that burning through with me, you know, both as a physical experience and as a mental experience. And is it and... part of that, was part of that be that also, if you've got a burnt finger, time probably feels longer than if you didn't have a burnt finger, like subjectively? In a certain sense, yes. Um, there is a sort of elasticity to Bergson's concept of how long duration is. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, um, if, you, if you have that thing that sort of amplifies your experience of the present, that is meaningful for Bergson. Something really is happening there. Mm -hmm. um, and why I feel this comes through to Ireland is... Bergson feels that, offers that transcendence is something that is achieved in the here and now. Mm -hmm. In seeing existence for flux, seeing that what we have now is temporary, provisional, it's going to go away, you know, both the physical objects, the people around us, but also the social structures, the ideas around us are temporary provisional structures so seeing that underlying real reality is this flow of forces this flow of duration this flow of time um this is what happens in ireland when people take the um moksha medicine they sort of experience a sort of perpetual creation mm. um which doesn't really occur it feels Superficially, perhaps, it feels like Buddhism, perhaps. It feels like a transcendence you might get in that religion. But it's it's not really the case. Um, you know, Buddha offers um, a nirvana that's only afterlife. Mm -hmm. You know, the ultimate reality is only found after life, after lives, perhaps. Mm. Um, and... Also, in the particular case of um, Ireland, I, I feel there are quite strong links with one um, Bergson essay, The Two Sources of Morality and Religion, which offers more or less a sort of, I guess, a, 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 a utopian manifesto, though that word is never used in it. The word utopian is never used. Um, which invests in a few great people as um, agents of sort of social change, agents of improvement, and 
even though Ireland is trying to weed out particular kind of figures, weed out sort of would-be leaders of a sort of Stalin kind, the muscle men, or indeed the Peter Pan kind, like Hitler, um, the whole society is continuously credited to um, this old Raja, the Raja of Reform, who lived like a hundred years before the society as we see it. Yeah. Um, and you know, Bergson offers something like this. He, he feels great people to be the sort of agents of social development. While he feels, say, creative impetus is a universal thing, only in a few people is it wed to a missionary zeal to create a social evolution, as he describes it. And in that respect, in, in that sort of investment in you know, missionaries who promote social evolution, I, I see a lot of Bergson in this novel. Mm. So yeah, how do you, because as you say, this idea of like kind of great people like producing the society in that way is very clear in this book. It's basically, um, we find out in the course of the book, it's the old Raja and uh, a, I forget his name, but a Scottish scientist who basically mm-hmm. Andrew MacPhail, yeah, that's the one, yeah. They basically design the society, um, which for me is not a good way of thinking about how to build utopia. Just have like <laughs> a couple of great people just design it for you and then implement it. But that's basically what's in this book. Um, in your essay that I read, you seem to be kind of suggesting that the novel is invested in that idea to some extent, but also maybe a bit skeptical of it. I mean, we can get into a big question about how much is this a utopian novel in the traditional sense, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Because um, Pala is endangered from the first moment we see it. You know, we have this sort of threat from Rendang, threat that they will invade, will sort of... um, take over the country for the oil supplies. And we know that Pala could not survive this. Pala is... One of the things it doesn't do is invest in military at all. Mm -hmm. There is basically no... There is no army on Pala. It it can't survive that. It will not survive that if it happens. Um, And the Palanese are sort of resigned to this, accepting of this, that what they have now is positive, maybe the best possible that we can have in this world, um, but that it almost certainly will go away. So we see like the school teacher, um, Mr. Menon's sort of hoping against hope that the example of a nation that has found a way of being happily human may be imitated. And, you know, he, he, he knows it's temporary. He knows it's provisional. Mm. Um, the old Raja in his notes on what's what says um, there has never been a society in which most good doing was a product of good being and therefore constantly appropriate Um, that does not mean that there will never be such a society or that we impala are fools for trying to call it into existence so they know they're only trying provisionally suggesting something to the world but there's this belief that because they've managed to make it happen, at least for 
a period of time, a hundred years, mm. that's a net good. That's something that perhaps a future society can look at and say, they did it so we can do it again. And I think Huxley, you know, he's mostly pessimistic about the hopes of the human race. You know, he's got all these fears about overpopulation. He's got fears about the power games of the Cold War. He's got fears that the human race might sort of if destroy itself. Mm. That um, at least we can imagine something better. And then if we can imagine it, maybe it can happen for a time. Mm. So it is it, it it isn't resilient it's not a society that has built-in mechanisms to keep itself going no. it depended on the raja to create it and it looks like murugan the incoming raja the sort of 17 year old who's going to come of age soon is going to destroy it and it there's nothing there to stop that there's no mechanism to stop that because i guess that wouldn't be Palanese, that wouldn't be the utopia Huxley imagines if the society was so constrictive of people mm. that people have to be allowed to create and they have to be allowed to destroy. Mm. Yeah, um, I think, yeah, it's uh, in some ways quite um, unusual as, as well in terms of, so there, there are lots of utopias that do the thing of like, laying out like okay here's how the society structured like here's how work functions here here's how the family functions here whatever etc cetera, etc cetera. there's a there's a lot a lot of the focus of this book is is like a linked to all these kind of spiritual things is a lot of stuff about kind of like what the experience of being in utopia is like which i think is quite unusual like it's about what you would feel like or what your consciousness would be in a utopia if you see what i mean um mm-hmm, as much mm-hmm. as like laying out the contours of it um i don't know how useful that is as a technique but it's something that's not done often i think yeah i mean it's, it's, it's very much a novel of people a society of people we, we see you know but, but both in terms of like the protagonist will he's got all this backstory all this trauma you know the family trauma I mentioned, and then he has a trauma because his wife has recently died in in circumstances for which he blames himself. Mm. Um, but we also have, yeah, more real human beings in society, lived experiences. You, you've talked about seeing suffering there. So mm. there's this connection between Will and um, Cecilia, one character, who also has recently lost her husband, you know, sort of stupid accident where he he's an experienced climber but he's died while climbing mm. you know it's it's not impossibly perfect and the people have normal human dramas Susila is struggling to recover even though she employs what Huxley believes is good practice in terms of meditating in terms of um putting the past behind of recognizing it is the past you know she's still suffering she's still struggling mm. so it, it, it bounces back to that Huxley's belief is in people um Huxley's investment is in people rather than um 
social, overarching social structures, I suppose. Sure. Okay. Well, just um, one one final thing I wanted to ask you about. Um, I mean, you've already kind of been 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 uh, gesturing towards this, but um, so the the novel. Uh, I mean, do you think we can get anything useful out of what the book has to say about like the problems of creating? a utopia in a non-utopia context because obviously we have these these threats from like the world at large um and ultimately at the end of the book the the tanks roll in and those threats like come to fruition so there's a lot of focus on this in the book like this threat looms throughout the whole book and ultimately Mm -hmm. appears and there's and we assume that those tanks rolling in mean the end of this utopia can we get anything about out of this beyond acknowledging the problem because yeah i mean there's a there's a there's a bit where there's an ambassador from redang who is not depicted as a sympathetic character i don't think you're supposed to view him as a sympathetic character and i don't think you're supposed to agree with everything he says however there's a bit where he's kind of talking about very cynically talking about the context of the world of this you know world of like mass murder and mass production and he says it's closing in and it's going to destroy Pala and despite him being depicted in a negative light I don't think Huxley necessarily thinks what this character is saying in this moment is wrong that's what it feels like to me anyway yeah I mean I think on one level there is a sympathy and you know in terms of the wider backstory of that you know I've not touched on it until now but you know Will isn't we find out isn't merely there as a journalist no. that the owner of his newspaper um lord alderhyde is also the owner of um a petrol company petroleum company yeah and you know will is meant to soften up pala to the idea of selling its oil for the sake of like um 2000 pounds something like that you know a year's salary whatever it's meant to have been and i think Huxley shows sympathy for the fact that you might do that. You know, that Will keeps telling himself about the year of freedom he can get. You know, if if he brokers this deal and gets you know, his cut, his small cut, yeah. that he gets a year of freedom and that there's a human sympathy for the idea that you might sell out all these people, you might sell out this paradise free one good-ish kind of year for yourself. I mean, uh, there is a sympathy for the dark aspects of the human vices mm-hmm. that I, I think sort of runs through this. Um, in terms of what is Ireland doing in terms of a utopia existing in, in our worlds, is it workable? Is it real? Um there's a thought that's been going through my head, and it's 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 not the reading. I'm not offering it as a reading, but that this is kind of all a dream. That you know, Will sort of washes up on the island, and you know, he sort of wakes up from going unconscious, and it sort of ends with him on a moksha trip, sort of semi-conscious. It, it begins in a dreamlike state of him sort of not really aware of where he is, what's going on, yeah. and ends with him in a dreamlike state, not really aware of what's going on. But 
then it's a book. I mean, it doesn't exist anyway. Pala doesn't exist. Sure. It never has existed. But if it can be imagined, I think this is the underlying thing, if it can be imagined, that's mm. something. Um, there are a few loose ends. I have an issue with, say, yeah, how, how crime is dealt with or isn't dealt with. A few sort of whole, holes of various sizes. But I think what Hux is offering is, I've imagined this. Mm-hmm. And if it can be imagined, that's a contribution. Maybe yeah. that can be taken forwards. I think that's, you know, it's it's his last novel. It's within a year, roughly speaking, of his death. And I think that's the sort of parting gift of it, the parting gesture of it. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, I think it's a, a nice place to, to end. Um, okay. So, um Thank you very much for joining me, Mark. It's been fun to talk about. Thank you once again. It's been a pleasure for me too. So that is the end of my conversation with Mark and this episode on Ireland. If you want to um, keep up to date with the podcast or um, send me any comments or questions or just let me know what you thought of the episode, then you can you can follow me on Twitter at Utopian Horizons. You can email me as well um, with same thing, any comments or suggestions or anything like that on utopianhorizonspod at gmail.com. As I mentioned up the top, uh, iTunes reviews would be really appreciated. They're helpful for the podcast and they're very nice for me to read. It's uh, it's generally really nice to hear when people enjoy the podcast, so that's cool. And yeah, patreon.com slash utopianhorizons. If you want to hear, hear more from me, um, signing up to support on there will unlock all the the many bonus episodes that are already available and the ones I'll be continuing to do um, and you can have a look at, you can head there and, and see the list of what's available and see if there's stuff there that looks like it might interest you so yeah that's me for today um, all being well I've got uh, a few interviews coming up very soon so should be should be in a position to keep the episodes coming for you But anyway, thanks for listening and um, I'll see you again soon. Bye-bye.